Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. This week, ED senior reporter Matt Mace heads back to the green room, the place where leading sustainability professionals strip back some of their corporate armour and discuss their passions, beliefs and hobbies, and how these have impacted their view on corporate sustainability and responsibility. Today, I'm welcoming former BT, Chief Sustainability Officer and current Chief Executive of Polymateria, Niall Dunn. Uh, For those who don't know, Niall recently took up his new position at Polymateria in order to redefine the plastics industry by developing naturally biodegradable alternatives. So Niall, uh, thank you very much uh, for welcoming me on today's episode. Um, Apologies for kind of locking you in a dark room on such a sunny day. That's all right, Matt. I've left my suit of armour at the door, so... um... (laughs) Looking forward to the questions. Brilliant. Um, so we we spoke about I think it's three months ago um, now when you I think you were formally two weeks into uh, into the role, um, and I think you just flown back from Davos as well. You're at the World Economic Forum. Um, so so three months on, you know, how, how's it gone? Is every week as glamorous as, as that week was? Or yeah, it's it's incredibly different to what I was doing. I think even, even before BT going back into, into Satya and Satya or, or Accenture, I think all of those organizations were big train sets and, and, and without running the risk of summarizing your, your role generally was to kind of influence from a, um, I wouldn't say small part of the business, but um, not all of the business, the way that those businesses innovate and their cultures and how they ultimately grow and make, mm. make a difference in the world and become better organizations as a consequence. What I'm finding leading polymateria is, is that um, you have uh, all of the business, every part of it, and you have an opportunity to be the moral compass and to influence every decision, every hire, every um, inflection point, if you want. And uh, with that, I think, comes a lot of introspection mm. around yourself and how you cope with pressure and and can you put a lot of the things that you believe in into practice and will you will you stand by them um and uh i'm really enjoying it i have to say really really enjoying it um it's going incredibly well we're building the team out at the moment i think when i spoke to you last i acknowledged the fact that the r&d function was where the business was incredibly strong yeah. but we need to do an awful lot of work to build ourselves out commercially and and to I think also have a, a global plan around how we bring this technology to the world so that's been my main focus over the last couple of weeks is bringing in the right people and the right capabilities to allow to do, us to do that really well okay well, that's brilliant and yeah um yeah last time we spoke obviously um you mentioned about about kind of R&D aspect of polymaterial and that that's aim to become the kind of Tesla of this kind of industry. Um, for, for our listeners who, uh, I'm sure they're aware who you are, but Polymaterium perhaps might be a, a new kind of uh, name for them. So I suppose a good place to start is, is just kind of giving a brief kind of outline of, of Polymaterium's business purpose and, and its, I suppose it's, its business brief, what it's trying to do here. Yeah, so Polymateria is, is chiefly focused at solving the world's plastic, the fugitive plastic issue that I'm sure people are seeing in the headlines, if not on a daily basis, yeah. actually on an hourly basis at the moment. And I don't think there's a person in the world that isn't kind of seeing this issue in one form or another. And I'm sure you'd agree with this. It's, it's probably an issue that transcends not just all environmental issues, 
it's probably the global issue that mm. people are um, uh, focused on at the moment. So whilst advocacy is incredibly high, um, solutions are really few and far between. And if there is any innovation or um, efforts to kind of resolve the issue, it tends to be greeted by kind of more of a populist response rather than real deep grounding in the science and mm -hmm. the facts and the data that allows you to understand the size of the problem and what we need to do to solve it. But also, I think, um, moving from populism to really unleashing collaboration like never before um, on this on this on this issue in particular. So Polymateria really is an organization we are building to um, be a big part of how we address that address that problem by using chemistry to ultimately allow biology or mother nature mm. to break down polymers as and when they wind up in the natural environment. So I think a lot of the um, the excitement is about uh, you know circular economy and industrial um, systems becoming in more circularity and encouraging recycling and design for reuse and everything else. Um, we support all of that and our technology works through all of that. But when those systems leak, um, or if there is no infrastructure in place, mm. um, then I think the real issue with plastic is the end of life phase, and we are a solution for that. Some of the technology that has gone on before, because of the lack of standards, because of the lack of the investment in innovation, mm. has really just been creating fragmentation. Yeah, definitely. So just um, through, through a process by which it's uh, kind of carbonizing almost the, the, the polymer chains themselves, it just splits the polymers down, but it doesn't allow bacteria to effectively attack the polymer chain mm and make the molecular weight small enough that can, it can be fully assimilated within nature. So you're left with nothing but carbon dioxide, some biomass and water. So full biodegradability. And that's where Polymateria has brought its internal standards forward to the point where we do not let anything out of the lab mm -hmm. unless we're, we know we're able to do that. Yeah, that was one of the things, uh, I think the key takeaways I took from our last um, chat was was that that rigorous standard in the R&D phase I, I imagine it would be quite exciting as a company to have this breakthrough and want to kind of shout it from the rooftops but if it's not ready um, and so it's good to see that the the kind of innovation hub at the Imperial College London is, is taking that, um, that rigorous standard so clearly and I do have more questions on that kind of that oxybiodegradable aspect of it um, uh, and we will get there but I thought a good way to do it because um, plastics is the new kind of realm you're in would be to get out a few of my props that I bought along so um, I have here a, uh, a branded uh, plastic carrier bag from a supermarket. I also have a coffee cup, which is uh, lined with plastic, again, from another well-known brand. I have here <laughs> a, um, well, at least I think it's lined with plastic, that one. Yeah, I apologize, I drank that on the train here, so it's, it's freshly used. <clears throat> um, I have here a kind of empty sandwich packet, um, half kind of cardboard and paper, half plastic again. What else is in my bag of goodies? Um, I have a couple of plastic straws here. Um, those belong to my girlfriend. She leaves them around the house everywhere, so she won't mind that these two have gone missing. Uh, <clears throat> perhaps another one is some toothpaste. And, of course, talking about plastics, wouldn't be complete about plastic water bottle. It's a good day for water, it's so hot. <clears throat> and finally, um, some plastic uh, covered energy run-in gels. 
Um, and of course the plastic bag itself as well. Uh, so now all of these have a kind of theme and question attached to them. So what I'm going to let you do is pick a, pick an item and and we will move on to that kind of theme and, and ask a few questions around that. Yeah, so I mean the first thing to say is that what you've presented here is is um, emblematic of one of the fundamental issues which is the complexity of mm. the overall way the polymers are actually used currently. And for the circular economy to work in any country, be that Norway or actually India as well, as a really strong PET um, recovery rate, um, simplifying down the, the 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 kind of the polymer composition to pick one or two, mm. um, or uh, you know kind of um, the ones at least that have the ability to meet the functional requirements for the for the product but also to kind of work within the system and really resolve the complexity. I think this is one of the big ways that governments, municipalities and brands hmm. kind of have come together and need to come together to simplify this whole system. So before going into each, I think that's that's kind of the, the first thing that, that, that should happen. Mm -hmm. But maybe let's start with the, um, the PET water bottle. Yeah, so this is something that we are not focused on mm -hmm. from an innovation perspective. And the reason for that is that PET is not actually a, a very pure polymer. There's a lot of things that go into PET that mean that if it does wind up in the natural environment, it's just not something that's a good candidate for biodegradation. However, it's an excellent candidate for recycling. Mm. And recovery levels around PET are incredibly, incredibly high in Norway, as I was saying. You're pretty good. Um, and generally the system knows what to do with PET when it comes through. It's, it's generally a, a clear, thin film bottle like this. Um, and I think in Norway, they're up to about 90% of these are being yeah, covered and there's take back schemes. And mm -hmm. India, I think, is up in the 80% as well okay. of PET bottles that are coming back. So um, we, from an innovation perspective, don't focus on PET. Where we focus on is on polypropylene. So I'm going to pick up these um, two straws here. Now, a lot of straws are made out of polypropylene. I'm going to tell you a story about... Um, uh, an investor of ours that uh, was, uh, until recently, sitting on the fence around whether they wanted to be an investor or not, but a very um, influential, um, wealthy individual that up until recently did not get sustainability and flew in a tuna mm -hmm. from um, God knows where to entertain their uh, friends at a big highbrow dinner in New York. Okay and lays the tuna out on the table and had their tuna chef cut open the tuna. And inside the belly of the tuna was a polypropylene straw. Oh, wow. And at this point, this gentleman just completely um, was, was um, kind of irate, firstly, about what had happened, but then started asking the question, how did this happen, and tuned into the issue and then decided to invest in the business because they started to realize just how big this fugitive plastic issue is. So there will be a lot of moves to ban straws all around the world, and that's probably a good thing. Mm. There are things that we need to reduce, and you kind of question whether or not straws are necessary. But as and when we do use straws for whatever reason, having polypropylene straws that can fully biodegrade in the natural environment is very is is an important would be an important safety yeah. belt if you want mm. so that if that tuna was cut open um, in a few years time 
the way that we can program our technology so that it can biodegrade in a very aggressive fashion, i.e. within six months, mm. our most of our customers are looking for more of a kind of a two-year type time frame, that by the time it had gone from land to whatever river to whatever ocean it winds up in to the point where that tuna actually ate it, that enzymes would have catalyzed a process by which bacteria would have properly broken this down and it would not have wound up in that tuna's belly. It would have started to, to break down, but then if you look at our technology, maybe versus microplastic, what mm. happens is you see bacteria actively attacking the chain mm. to the point where the molecular weight breaks down and you're left with nothing else but carbon dioxide and water. So that's just kind of the straws. Um, if I go to the coffee cup, um, this is PE coated paper. So this is paper that's ultimately coated, coated with poly um, ethylene um, and the issue there is, is is exactly that it's two things so the reason we have such an issue with with um, firstly the number of these things I think you probably know I think six billion are used in the mm, UK every yeah. year so it's a it's a stunning number of cups that we can't actually recycle because we're not actually able to break down and separate <coughs> the PE however one of the technologies that we're very excited about um, is going to resolve the PE um, and the um, paper issue and come up with something entirely new that can be recycled, that can cost in, but also that if it does wind up in the natural environment for whatever reason will break down. Mm. And that's part, a big part of our innovation pipeline. So that's the coffee cup. Um, your toothpaste is high density polyethylene, I'd imagine, and at the moment, because of the complexity of that, because of all of the barrier layers, it's incredibly different to difficult to break down. This is not something that we're focused on, no, definitely. but definitely something that should, you know, should should be recycled um, at, at all at all opportunities. And again, I think just to kind of pull out your sandwich um, packaging. So this is cardboard and it's got a poly polyethylene film so that people can see um, the actual state that the sandwich is in inside in the box. This also um, is a very common technology or dual technologies that you see used in letters and envelopes. Mm. So the envelopes with the little window in the yeah, front. And again, another huge challenge for recycling. So this is not so much a challenge for biodegradation or a candidate for biodegradation. This is a candidate for simplification. So this is where policy can make a real difference to, to actually mandate that whatever packaging um, your sandwich comes in, is actually one type mm, and this is where our technology can offer something like um, a, a polypropylene um, as one way that you can provide a degree of rigidity but also something that you can see through so that it can go through a recycling facility it doesn't it can be one technology as opposed to two and what you'd need is you'd need government and municipalities to come together and effectively ban this kind of stuff yeah but have a cost-effective alternative um, that, uh, that allows that allows you to to just have a more systemic response to it. So I think kind of what you're getting a picture is the the complexity of all of this packaging. There's no silver bullet, but there's um, definitely ways that each can be addressed either through simplifying the overall composition and whatever technology you're using, having it fully biodegrade once it's in the natural environment is the ultimate seatbelt. Mm -hmm. We've done some modeling and analysis with a consultancy um, that we're going to start open sourcing and, and really inviting feedback on, which suggests that there is going to be a billion tons 
of fugitive plastic waste in the world by the year 2050. So everything that we're doing at the moment, whether it's banning straws or policy changes, whatever, factored into the model, we're still going to have a billion tonnes of fugitive plastic waste largely around all of the stuff that yeah, we that put on the table. Okay, but that's, <clears throat> that's a really interesting overview and it's great to kind of see you've got kind of numerous um, visions and futures that you're along numerous kind of strands of past that you're striving towards. One thing that isn't here, Matt, if, if you don't mind, that I might just, just kind of just, I think it's worth mentioning is that you don't, there's no bioplastic here. Yeah. Which is actually a statement in and of itself. So when you look at the billion ton fugitive problem, or more specifically maybe the, the plastic production of, according to Gemma Jambeck, who's one of the authorities on this in the University of Georgia, we're at about 350 million tonnes um, of plastic production per annum at the moment. Bioplastic is maybe 2 million tonnes at the moment. So it's, it's really tiny. And also, it most of it does not biodegrade. In fact, the majority of it doesn't biodegrade. Mm -hmm. So when you're finding the likes of PLAs in the natural environment, um, they're not breaking down to the, to, the, to the extent that you should. Equally, the recycling system is not able to deal with it. So when you see a PLA container, you'll know it because it's kind of... It's, it's, it's a bit darker and it's a little cloudier type yeah. of substance. When that comes into a recycling facility, there's nothing that can happen with it at the moment. So mm. it's, it's almost like, um, it's like um, uh, you know, a kind of um, an effort to decouple from petroleum feedstock. It doesn't go all the way to then think about full circularity and how it could biodegrade in our ultimate circular economy, which is ultimately nature, if it mm. did wind up in it, or indeed gone as far as changing the recycling facilities so they can properly deal with it and for them I think to to kind of move beyond 2 million tonnes to maybe being 10 million tonnes or 50 million tonnes uh, whatever their full potential is I think being able to um, figure out how it can be properly recycled and also how it will biodegrade if it wound up in the natural environment are indeed composting a lot of the bioplastics can be composted mm -hmm. so you need to educate consumers around when you see this type of a cloudier container knowing that it is compostable and putting it in your worm farm at home or putting it in your compost heap at home it should break down definitely definitely um okay yeah no, really really good overview there and so um i'm glad you were able to touch on each of the like the, the numerous type of plastics it's such a confusing world especially for consumers um so all of these do have little tidbits of information i'd like to lean from you as well um, the laptop is also on because it's also made of plastic so if you pick one I have kind of specific questions related to them as well okay um, well let's start with the laptop so um, there's a lot of kind of high density plastic used in everything from laptops mm. through to car bumpers um, we're 100% not focused on any of that mm. because it's not going to be a likely source of fugitive and actually whether it's the automotive industry or um, consumer electronics um, probably more more so the automotive industry they actually have very good recycling um, facilities in place um, we are more focused on the kind of the consumer packaging good space which is tend to tends to be where the most likely sources of fugitive plastic are coming from Okay, well, I mean, the, the laptop plastic is actually just a really kind of tedious link to, um, to one of your previous, uh, previous job roles. You, you'll find a lot of these links are quite, um, quite stretching. I, I've, I've done my best. Because um, obviously before uh, Polymaterial, you spent almost seven years at BT, um, I believe. Uh, a, a complete different world of focus um, in regards to sustainability. Um, you built up a really kind of impressive 
track record, a lot of accolades and praise for some really kind of high-profile organisations in in this sector. There, um, what what was it like to to make that that move after such a was probably a prosperous time in your life where you managed to achieve so much with such a such a global company? What was that that transition? like from from being somewhere where you know you've you've got that business case built in to to a step I imagine largely into the unknown I don't think it was hugely unknown I've I've always tried with uncertainty Mm. and I think that um, I won't say after seven years that that you know that I think my next five years are probably going to be my best five years because I'm 43 now I um, I've learned a huge amount and the principle by which I made the decision to move into BT initially is kind of the same principle by which I decided to leave BT and, and, mm. and leave Polymateria, which is that unless we have exemplar businesses, more Patagonias, more Teslas, more mm. Unilevers, more businesses that people can point to that are growing by solving the world's problems as opposed to creating them, I just... I don't think we we you know I don't think humanity gets to live here in the way that it has been over the last number of decades, and I think everything that I learned in BT about how you grow, I think in particular the net good portfolio, so kind of bringing that to being five point three billion, yeah, twenty two percent of group revenues overall. That's not straightforward growth because it's carbon abating growth mm-hmm. and for you to legitimately claim that you need to peer review and have scientists and NGOs and everybody from the carbon trust through to the IPCC believing that ICT is a big part of the way that the world is going to decarbonize but by doing that what you actually find is that whether that's internet of things connected home machine to machine that that it gives you insight into the, what the technology needs to do that allows you to really hone and improve the innovation and maybe spot the next thing. Mm. So it's a fantastic ecosystem, the scientific community, to, um, I think, uh, drive innovation and adjacent opportunities, but also a great path to advocacy for your particular technology. Because when you go to you know, the climate conference in Paris in 2015, being able to stand there with peers and mm. sometimes even the competition within the industry and put forward a view that ICT was able to abate 22, 23% of global carbon emissions and create markets of about $11 trillion in the process of bottom lines and top line. That's an incredibly exciting thing, effectively saying we're another clean technology, another solar, another wind energy, but we would not have had the right to do that unless NGOs and the scientific community had really kicked the tires on our science and mm. our assumptions and our innovations first, and then um, being able to put that forward and be kind of seen as credible in places like Paris, which of course drives sales, drives growth, drives um, um, even culture change within the business, where you want to grow these types of technologies, which are, as I said, um, in that instance, abating carbon as opposed to creating it, and the best people in the business want to work on that particular part of the portfolio and maybe you move away from things that weren't um, carbon abating because they're not going to be as productive or as, or as profitable in future. So when you look at polymateria and you look at the global plastic epidemic and you look at fugitive plastic specifically and the headlines that that was beginning to get mm. over the course of last year, there was 
no real pathway by which we were going to take a lot of the lessons that we'd learned, even going back before climate action to how we tackled the hole in the ozone layer. And still to this day, the Montreal Protocol and the innovation of DuPont specifically are probably the two things that, make, that allow us to look at the positive impact we've had and say the hole in the ozone layer is now closing. DuPont and the industry actually, as it turns out, are all growing with portfolios that aren't using CFCs. And that is a very positive example of what we need to do. Similarly, from a climate action perspective, we had, I think, um, 10 years ago, very little engagement from markets, going back further, maybe 15 years ago, very little engagement from markets before we created the cost curve abatement methodology that Masit and Kinsey created yeah. to allow us to look at how you actually scale everything from solar to clean coal to EVs to um, um, storage and so on even um, fracking and some medium term solutions, shale gas was in there as well, nuclear was in there too we didn't get everything right, there was a huge amount of assumptions in there but we did have solar energy in particular and now more recently EVs and mm. things like smart meters really emerge as an incredible part of the commercial success of that overall approach um, and markets started to respond get the right degree of investment and capitalization innovation in places like China drove down the cost of PVs and ultimately you know kind of solar is, a, is an incredible success story as is wind and, and will continue to be the case We've nothing like that on plastic yet. Yeah, definitely. So I really felt that there comes a time in everybody's career, and, and talking to Gavin Patterson, the CEO of BT, who was also my mentor, about what's next for me, what can I contribute over the next five years to the business. It was a very clear picture. It was really about, um, I think, taking things to the next level within BT. When you're a CSO, you're, as I said at the start, directly accountable for part of the business but not all of the business mm. influencing the culture influencing the brand these are things that are outside usually of your functional remit so it's down to more soft power and influencing and ultimately every CSO fails any of my peer group you ask them there's always a part but they're not happy with nobody's mm. got it right um, there's certain things that they'll be particularly strong on and proud of but there'll be uh, you know um large parts of the organization that they'll have just failed to influence for whatever reason. With Polymateria, I get a chance to lead the whole business. I get a chance to work with an investor or investors that I know and I trust. And I get to apply a lot of the lessons that I've learned through climate action largely on an issue like plastics, which doesn't really have the same commercial or market-based approach yet to how it's going to be tackled and resolved. So I think it's just a great, great opportunity to really think about how I can put everything I've learned into practice and try and build not just a team and a culture here, but a whole ecosystem mm. around the business that's just wired for collaboration and make sure that that collaboration drives our innovation. And I think as long as our innovation is at the highest standard and transforming the, um, the whole expectations around what technology is able to do, I think we have a decent chance of being the DuPont um, on uh, plastic, you know, that, 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 that for me is going to be an incredibly exciting way to spend my time over the next five years. Definitely. It, sound, it sounds like the, the fact that you're able to immerse and surround yourself with that scientific community 
um, with that aspect of technology at, at BT um, and the fact that it, that happened at a time where that global movement towards climate change really reached a kind of fever pitch as well. Um, it, it sounds to me like it, it gave you a, a kind of wider appreciation and understanding of, of innovation and, and the potential it has to to transform and the fact you've taken a jump to a different sector um would you is, is impressive would you describe that jump as a, as a leap of faith no i think um in life you if you're i think clear on your purpose and that purpose is the thing that drives you you make decisions with a moral compass that's bigger than you without being incredibly dramatic about it you you kind of want to feel like you've made the place different for having been here when all of your learning has been around how you change businesses and how you lead businesses mm. and how you innovate and solve those problems you look at any way that you could you could go and there's there's no perfect environment there's no perfect ecosystem in fact a lot of places that you will go initially you'll face chaos but as a leader, your job is to take chaos and create order, and then from order, create coherence, and from coherence, create momentum, and from momentum, create impact. Hmm. And as long as you have the levers to do that and the resources to do that, and it's a mission that you really believe in, um, and you can look you know, your family or your loved ones in the eyes and feel that you're not just going to do a day job because you want to earn money, but you actually want to make a difference in the world mm. I don't think you ever think of these things as a leap of faith I think loyalty maybe sometimes stops you from doing it Okay. loyalty to Gavin mm. loyalty to, to BT wanting to see that particular mission through you kind of realise that everywhere you go there's going to be people that you need to be loyal to mm. and they'll be okay the people that you leave behind as long as you do things in the right way and as long as you think about legacy and succession and you know, imparting everything you've got to give while you're there. Organizations, particularly big organizations, carry on. And I think you're always amazed or surprised by how somebody else steps up to take to take your place and does things even better than you. Mm. You know, um, so that that um, is never a reason not to go. Um, and the world needs polymateria right now. Okay, that's great. I'm learning a lot of life skills uh, right now. And <clears throat> I suppose we go back to the, the table of plastics, if you want to take your, your second yeah. pick. Oh, second pick. Um, gosh. Um, well, let's, let's take the energy gel. So yes. having been an athlete once upon a time... Yeah, that was, that was uh, the link I was, that I was going for. Then. I'm so old that uh, I, this energy gels weren't really around in, in, in my day. Yeah. But uh, I do try to keep in shape. And I think one of the things that a lot of this type of packaging has is an incredible shelf life. And it has yeah. that because of the barrier layer where there's aluminium and there's all different types of things that go in place around the polyethylene, I think in this case, um, that make it incredibly difficult to break down. So this is again, another example of where we kind of need to redesign the system. Mm. So sachets more broadly so going beyond the developed world yeah it's a, it's a middle-aged yeah. men in lycra fascination with energy gel <laughs> into how sachets are being maybe used in india and, and all around the, the the kind of the developing world um there's a real need to kind of redesign this system at the moment what's happening with sachets 
probably the most progressive thing that's happening end of life is then being used in roads and, and in big infrastructure projects to basically kind of bury the stuff. Hmm. Um, and I, I don't know how circular that is. I've not seen any life cycle analysis on it. It's better than it being littered. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think the thing that really needs to happen with sachets is how do we redesign it and, and ultimately design that barrier layer out because mm. the barrier layer is the thing that's the problem. So because of the innovation that we've been able to develop with polypropylene specifically, we could design a technology that would remove the need for having a bar barrier layer and then allow this to be properly used as part of the regular recycling streams ideally, but then if it does wind up in nature, that it would be properly biodegraded and it would break down. So yeah, I like the energy gel idea, but I think the bigger issue here is, is globally is, is sachets. Um, and that is something that we are very focused on. But from a business commercialization perspective, where we're going after this is in, is in Southeast Asia. So mm. this, is, this is where I think the big sources of um, fugitive is probably, but also um, where a lot of the sachets exist. Yeah, we, um, we spoke to Ellen MacArthur about a year ago, and, and she really highlighted the point to me personally about, about sachets, especially in, when they end up in kind of waterways in those developing nations, that the infrastructure is not in place, which is really kind of eye-opening. Um, but um, the, the reason the energy gel is there is not just because it's kind of marathon weekend, and I'm sure there's going to be lots of them all around London on the floor, but um, as you mentioned, you know, Athletics was a, a big part of your earlier life. Um, for those who don't know, you um, you represented Ireland internationally as an 800 meter uh, runner, um, and and I, I've read this um, numerous times online. You, you know, you're you're an advocate for the power that sport has to make real real change uh, amongst people, amongst communities, um, and and I also read which really kind of struck me as interesting was that you you think sport can be a vehicle to inspire people globally to take action on the sustainable development goals. Um, it's something I read. I hope that's true. Otherwise, this question has just been sprung on you about absolutely nothing. <laughs> but um, it's a really interesting thought, and I'd like to see um, hear your not see hear your opinions on on how you think sport can can help um, inspire action towards the SDGs. Yeah, I think um, I'm living proof that it's true. Um, <laughs> I wasn't a particularly um, strong academic mm. in in school. I think the reasons for that were I was probably you know as as a kind of a teenager in Ireland as most teenagers are, kind of struggling for identity and what's my place in the world and, and trying to maybe channel a revolutionary spirit without any real maturity is never a good never a good recipe for success. So um, in my early kind of life, rubbed up against systems really more than I changed them. Um, sport probably saved me. It's certainly when I dropped out of college in Dublin, the first time I've dropped out of college twice, I... Um, worked in a cat food factory packing actually whiskers cat food we don't mm. have any whiskers in front of us but i then at night worked in a, um, a clearing department for a bank um, clearing checks from 10 o'clock at night till two o'clock in the morning and the thing that kind of kept me sane then was just running i had played rugby in school and, and been fast been a winger and when the, when the rugby season would end, I'd, um, I'd go out and I'd do, you know, track and field with, with a few of my friends. And we would kind of, you know, coach each other. There was a great PE coach in the, in the high school that I went to. And he put me into the 400 hurdles. And I came second in the Na Irish National Schools Championships off really nothing but kind of rugby training. <laughs> so when I was working these, these jobs, I started asking myself the question, is this all I want to be? What is my purpose and, and how do I make more? And really the only channel I had, the only platform I had 
to uh, answer those questions was through sport. So I did, you know, kind of what, what most kind of young impressionable men do. I watched films like Rocky and The Natural and all these kind of, you know, feel-good films and he ran up steps and ate raw eggs for breakfast and wore grey cotton sweats. So that's what I did. <laughs> Literally, as naive as you possibly could be, zero excellence, 100% enthusiasm, 100% commitment. So I think anybody who knows me from back then will say that, you know, they, they probably would recognise that when I decide I'm going to do something, I'm probably, you know, one of the most dedicated people you'll ever meet. So, um, but not necessarily maybe doing the right thing. So I really applied myself to doing all the wrong kinds of training, but I think through just sheer bloody-mindedness and, and determination, started winning races for 400-meter hurdles in Ireland and in England. And then the phone started to ring, and it was you know, coaches from America saying to me, oh, would you like to come on a scholarship? And I went to Manhattan College in New York, and then I went to Colorado State University, did an MBA, dropped out of that because I wanted to come back um, and try out for the Olympics, the Sydney Olympics in, in 2000. But that provided me not just with a platform, but a whole continuum towards building my self-confidence, building my self-esteem, uh, appreciating the value of hard work. Mm. When I think the formal educational system and the formal employment system really wasn't for a person like me, sport was the thing that provided me with enough empowerment and enough clarity to really focus on going after some big goals and learning a lot about myself and the environment I needed to create around me to do that. And then I kind of followed those principles through in, in Accenture where I was lucky enough to you know, get a job when I moved back to, to Ireland and then halfway through there I set up the sustainability practice. But when BT bought sports rights mm. in 2012 and then brought them to the market August 2013 is when BT Sport was launched thinking about which is which was my role how does the purpose of BT come to life through all of the biggest capital investments that we were making as an organization I felt that sport to really reflect the purpose of the company needed to be about grassroots social impact why was that a good thing to do from a business perspective? It was a good thing to do from a business perspective because if the community believes in it, it's going to support your ratings. If the community feels the difference, people are going to turn in and watch those mm. big clubs playing the games. Whereas if they become galacticos and disconnected from the community, and you can see it in you know, the NFL and the NBA, maybe in the, in the US where they're struggling for ratings. So we launched sports and we gave it away for free to our customers and we also made sure that there was um, a way we launched the supporters club um, and did a partnership with sport relief uh, and that was all part of really thinking about differentiating ourselves in the market so not just being about spending all this money on sports rights and making no impact but actually trying to find the next me <laughs> the next kid who wanted to yeah. you know, kind of transcend whatever their environment was and make something of themselves and I was lucky enough to work with people like Rio Ferdinand who himself is an example of a kid whose sport was given a chance yeah, to definitely. you know now BT have kind of built a, a sports channel around him and then related to the SDGs um, again was lucky enough to work with Ben Ainsley as part of our um, desire to I think mainstream the message of sustainability and have it be something that a sports fan would understand in their in their in their own way and take action on um, the the uh, the America's Cup 
was um, at Ben's team, in particular Ben Ainsley Racing, with the help of Wendy Schmidt, was um, designed all around the kind of the circular economy. And when we um, were launching the SDGs, Ben and I went to New York and talked to the Social Good Summit and talked, you know, in, in really few other places, all about the power of sport to change people's lives and to kind of build grassroots awareness and take action against the SDGs in very practical, meaningful ways that weren't very top-down, but were much more the kind of stories that resonated with me because they're true as, you know, as, 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 you know, as my own story kind of testifies to. And, um, I mean, you mentioned briefly that, you know, you still like to get out and, and run. Um, I run quite frequently now um, after work. It's just a great chance for me to zone out and, and unwind and just let my mind go wherever it wants to go. It's a great relaxation and mentally quite healthy for me as well. Um, you mentioned you still get to run a fair bit. It's, do you get to disconnect yourself from work there, or is it a case of you're running down the street and you see like a, a plastic bottle or a sachet or something on the street and then you, you go straight back to that work mindset again? Yeah, I'm, I'm an incredibly obsessive person. People who, who kind of know me know I'm, I'm uh, pretty relentless, but I think any, anybody who's kind of relentless has their way that they recharge and has their way that they kind of decompress and process. Um, exercise is, is really it for me. Being out there in, in nature, running was kind of where I started, but over recent years have tried to find ways to surf and to mountain bike and mm. to be kind of just doing anything that's kind of got a little bit of speed, a little bit of risk associated with it, but out in nature enjoying it. What I find since, I don't know if it's, it's so much being fixated on this issue or being obsessed about this issue, I just see plastic everywhere. I see it, you know, as I'm cycling my bike in the B roads of this country, it's almost like every six inches of the verges in, in Buckinghamshire, which is where I live. Mm. And it just makes me more determined. It just makes me more convinced. So I do it to, to decompress and I do it to recharge. And I do think it does me some good from a kind of mm. a spiritual perspective, but it is certainly fueling me, you know, seeing it everywhere. Even when I went to Bali um, eight years ago, every third stroke as I was pushing, waves away in, in the Uluwatus of this world, every third stroke was, was a plastic bag, a straw. Um, and, you know, it, it's no wonder that the Attenborough show nearly broke the internet in China. Yeah. Because yeah. that was eight years ago. So what's happened since, I'll tell you what's happened since, is people have really cottoned on and there's a massive expectation that something's going to happen, but there's no solutions, or there's very few solutions. So that's where polymateria comes in, and that's where we need to unleash this collaboration to properly to properly address it. The, the collaboration is an interesting point. Um, the reason the, the coffee cup is, is sat on uh, the table, um, not just because of the, the kind of the, the pea lined interior, tip, but that was that was probably a sign of what's to come in in the world of resource efficiency. Uh, the coffee shop chains got it, I suppose, in the year um, in terms of media campaigns before. Blue Planet came along and the wider plastics issue came about and so they've had a bit more time to work on it the likes of Costa and, and Starbucks uh, are leading it like Costa's announcement this week they're going to recycle um, like half a billion coffee cups annually is a great sign of leadership and they're inviting all the other um, relevant retailers to come on board and that's the type of collaboration you want to see in the plastic world exactly exactly I think um Let's be very clear though, what the downstream brands are doing though is, is posing the challenge back upstream to their supply chain, yeah, yeah. to their packaging converters. It's very encouraging um, and actually unusual for, for them to put 
money alongside it as well for them to put an innovation fund in place mm. which is which is great to see um, but ultimately it's about the challenge back to the supply chain to innovate the irony is the supply chain isn't where the margins are the supply chain is where the you know where a lot of the efficiencies have been driven over the last couple of years so the the supply chain in a lot of instances are really um, stranded and they, they don't know what to do so our market is effectively going to that supply chain sharing our innovation portfolio if we don't have an answer sharing the principles by which our technology can either simplify down the particular application mm -hmm. you're, you're using and maybe suggesting as opposed to having PE coated paper um, why don't you just have just one that we have proven that's food safe that can hold the kind of temperatures that you need to have in a coffee yeah. cup that costs the same which is where a lot of the bioplastics kind of fall over. Mm -hmm. doesn't have a big water footprint story associated with it. Um, and to put that into the mix, um, and I think as, you know, as long as the big brands um, are, are kind of, kind of comfortable um, I think you know that's that's where polymateria will get to you know kind of be a big part of the solution over the next couple of years okay um, that's really exciting and I suppose uh, we've got time for probably one more the with plastic um, cable we probably won't get through them all but it's nice to leave our listeners with a bit of mystery as to what they all mean so uh, for the final pick let's go with toothpaste um, I know we mentioned the packaging earlier so it's HDPE but I'm going to flip it open is this actually your toothpaste Matt? yeah so don't it's, okay, a, it's a valuable so resource so don't, don't, don't use it all yeah so there's there's um, a three quarter used tube of toothpaste <laughs> here what I'm going to go to is the actual paste and I'm taking out the paste and I'm going to put it on my finger and the really interesting thing about this is the hidden polymers that are mm. in all of this material. That's the, yeah, that was where I was going with this one. So um, as you brush your teeth and you wash out into the sink, um, the microplastics that are in there, the microbeads, are a massive issue that needs a fundamental redesign to the entire system. Mm. Another one that, that you know, is probably maybe more an iconic British example is the tea bag. So most people, I'd imagine, think that they're tea leaves and the bag that that comes in are something that they can throw into their home composting yeah. facility but it, again it's the same issue there are polymers in the actual in the tea bag itself meaning that it can't fully compost it can't fully biodegrade so again um, we're a small business with limited resources but of those two things going after the tea bags given the country that we're actually in and redesigning that mm. so that they can when they go into home composting fully biodegrade but also that these microbeads, when they wind up, effectively the issue with a microbead is when it goes into nature, it's passive. There's mm -hmm. no way that nature can attack it and break it down. It may fragment it, but the issue is a microbead is so fragmented, there's nothing else going to happen to it ever. Mm. Whereas with polymaterials technology in it, the fact that it can actually be attacked by bacteria and that broken down further so that it ultimately it could be consumed um, and fully assimilated by nature could be a big game-changing part of the overall equation. And of course, washing your clothes. I think a lot of people will know about washing the clothes and particularly a lot of the fleeces yeah. that we're using at the moment are flushing out microbeads. Now, I think probably the best system solution there as opposed to our technology would be filters on the washing machine that would capture it. But a kind of maybe a shorter term solution would be us working with some of those apparel manufacturers to introduce our biodegradable okay, technology yeah. to the microbeads so that when they wind up in the natural environment, they'd fully break down. Um, yeah, and that's exactly the point I was, I was trying to make with the toothpaste, that, that whole microbead 
I'm going to wipe the toothpaste off on your empty coffee cup. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> leave that there. <laughs> um, so yeah, the reason I, I brought that up was um, that microbeads aspects and that and that inability to to break down completely in, in the natural environment. Um, when we published um, the article um, introducing polymaterial, I suppose, to to our audience. A lot of the people were interested in that kind of oxy-biodegradable aspect of it. Um, in front of me, I've got a report from the New Plastics Economy, uh, founded by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Mm-hmm. The title's quite um, quite damning, really. Oxy-degradable plastic packaging is not a solution to plastic pollution and does not fit in a circular economy. I know we um, we touched mm-hmm. on this earlier about how you're, you're trying to push beyond the oxy-degradable mm-hmm. aspect of it and the rigorous testing, the R&D. But... Um, uh, I suppose for ease of mind for some of the people listening and, and some people that read the article, mm. you know, how how are you going above and beyond this issue? And and I suppose, you know, how how long until these solutions start finding routes to market? Yeah. So before we had Tesla, we had the milk float, right? So, you know, I think as a child of the 80s in Ireland, all of our milk was delivered on these milk floats. Mm-hmm. And if somebody told me back then that uh, one day we were going to have the most aspirational sports car that any investment banker would want to have in Canary Wharf would be the Tesla Model S or the X. I laughed at them. I said, but surely that's milk float technology. So because of the investment Polymaterials had in innovation and because of the standard that we're actually working to, the ASTM standards globally or the Swedish SPCR 141 standard, Mm. our internal standard, is better than that again. So whilst there's some things that we've actually learned from technology that has gone before us, the ability to acquire full biodegradability and do that in an accelerated fashion within the natural environment is at a whole other level to anything else that's met there at the moment. And I think sometimes what some of the reports can miss is the fact that the most powerful circular economy we've got is nature. Yeah. So the ultimate test is when anything winds back up in nature, has nature got everything it needs to deal with it? And at the moment for plastic, yes, that question is no. So I think there is a fourth R missing, reduce, reuse and recycle, all great, but there's a turbocharged R called resource recovery, R squared if you want. And that's where polymaterials focus. When any system leak, uh, when, whenever the system leaks, as all systems do, can you actually allow nature to fully assimilate it and break it down? And I think because it's been not scrutinised to the extent it should have been in the past, there's been a lot of people making false claims and saying that milk floats are Teslas mm. when they're not. Because of the in- innovation that we benefited from, from Imperial College, from our investors, from our backers, we've been able to bring things to a whole other level. Actually, one of the things you should do is come tour the lab and you should see a, a, what we call a wall of shame, which is which is actually hundreds of different types okay. of plastic like this. Mm. And we clearly show you where we're actually commercially ready, what we're working on and what um, is going to come, you know, kind of over the over the kind of the longer term. Mm. And it's it's basically a full depiction of all fugitive plastic waste. And I think that, you know, the kind of the the ability for us to go back and if you look if you read further into this report that, that Ellen did, I know Ellen well, I think there's a there's a page that does talk about the potential for biodegradability and compostability. Um, but not at the standard they were developed at previously, mm. because it's it's just it's just um, it's just snake oil, um, you know. But I think now that the scrutiny is there, I think businesses like ours can set new goalposts and, and just bring the thing to a whole other level. Exciting stuff. Um, I, I realise we are a bit pressed um, for time, but I would yeah love to come along to the uh, the wall of shame, uh, so to speak. Um, so it's you know this has been a fascinating chat. It's left me 
rejuvenated, um, both in regards to sustainability and, and the sport. Um, and I'm sure our listeners will feel the same. So, I mean, just before I let you go, and I will, I will pack up all this packaging and find some way of recycling it, which is going to be easier said than done by the sounds of it, other than the toothpaste that, that's coming home with me. Um, I suppose, yeah, just before I, I do pack up and, and let you go on your way, um, just a quick glance ahead to the future, what you're kind of focused on in the next couple of months. I mean, I know you're speaking at ED Live in a few weeks as well. Yeah, really looking forward to that. I think it's just a it's just a great um, chance to let the world kind of engage with our business in a way that we've just not been able to do previously. Because I think the the business has been so focused on R and D up until the end of of last year. Me kind of coming on board in January, we're just really starting to kind of build the muscles by which we can you know not just um, uh, kind of commercialize, but also um, ensure that the world knows that our technology is what it can do, mm-hmm. what it can't do, um, and, and you know, to kind of really point towards where the kind of, not just the biggest markets are for us, but also where the biggest sources of fugitive plastic are in the world, and, and you know, work back from that in terms of how we're gonna solve that particular problem. So that's that's the primary focus, um, and I'm gonna be on, I think, planes quite a bit over the next couple of months and, and I think also reviewing some really exciting candidates and you know building out the team here within the business so I'm looking forward to doing that as well. Yeah, it sounds like exciting stuff and um, well um, no, thank you very much uh, for your time and, and for those um, listening just a reminder that these podcasts they can be listened to via um, the ED website just search sustainable business covered and you can also search that on iTunes and you will find it there as well. Um, But until next time, it's goodbye. Thanks so much, Matt.